Tonight's clear spot is a modest tribute to Frank Key, writer, illustrator, broadcaster, who died last Friday. Frank's series, Hooting Yard on the Air, which established him as our writer-in-residence on a weekly basis for nearly 18 years, and two episodes of which were here now, was the longest-running show on Resonance FM. He will be sorely missed. Frank Key. Good evening, this is Resonance 104.4 FM. Uh, my name is Frank Key and this is Hooting Yard on the Air. Um, recently, the, um, the recent Polish elections were won by the Civic Platform Party, um, led by Donald Tusk. It struck me that Donald Tusk sounds less like the um, Polish Prime Minister than some kind of... Um, Plutocrat in a modern American novel. Anyway, um, the point is that the Civic Platform um, won the won the election and uh, forming a government with the Peasants Party. And um, it reminded me that for a long time now, there's been talk of creating a hooting yard Civic Platform. Unfortunately, the discussions have been mired in disagreement, unintelligibility, hysteria, and pomposity. But perhaps it's time to let bygones be bygones and crack on with the job. Any future Hooting Yard Civic platform will be robust rather than weedy, and it will be fit for purpose. Those are really the only things we need to bear in mind, for all else is as a vapour of haze in a mist of unknowing, as Mrs Gubbins put it the other day while talking in her sleep. It's difficult to overstate the importance of Mrs Gubbins' contribution to this project. The crone is nearly 90 now and has very few teeth in her head, but she's been around long enough to see an impressive number of platforms, both civic and otherwise, come and go. Our platform, when it is built, will rest on solid foundations, and we must thank her for that, even if she is likely to be taking an afternoon nap when we do so. I had hoped to bring on board a squadron of Zonkide millibands to kick-start this new energetic phase of civic platform development, but Mrs Gubbins' head turned green and septic when this idea was mooted, so I abandoned it. Instead, I got a pot of paint and daubed not weedy, robust, on a makeshift proto-platform donated by old farmer Frack. Apparently it's made out of bits of a cow buyer that he smashed up one night, but it serves its purpose admirably and looks very civic, plopped in the middle of a field rife with bracken. Mrs Gubbins, whose head is thankfully back to normal, has planted some nettles thereabouts to add what she calls a dash of Spartan rigour to the scene. Whether the Spartans made use of nettles in such a way is not something I know about, and nor, I suspect, does La Gubbins, but it's always best to humour her fancies. Attractive as the proto-platform is, it lacks a certain coherence, for it remains unclear what kind of initiatives and policies will be launched from it. And believe you me, I intend the Hooting Yard Civic Platform to be a launchpad for a bewildering number of initiatives and policies. That's why a particularly damp and gloomy cellar in Pang Hill Orphanage will be the headquarters, soon I hope, of the Pang Hill Orphanage think tank, from which ideas will fizz. It would already have been set up had I been able to bash into old farmer Frack's head the notion that, as a mad bellowing rustic, he's not really a suitable candidate to be the think tank's director. He has his heart set on the position, bless him, even though it doesn't involve cows, but I'm hoping to fob him off by making him an honorary patron. Which brings me neatly to the main point of this other, otherwise witless drivel, which is that you too can apply to sit alongside old farmer Frack at the snack bar counter reserved for honorary patrons of the Hooting Yard Civic Platform. 
to be considered for this unbearably thrilling way of spending your twilight years, all you need to do is to complete the following sentence in no more than 10,000 words. I will prove to be a robust rather than weedy patron of the Hooting Yard Civic platform because my first priority will be... Um, and you go on from there. <coughs> um, send your entries to uh, to me at um, hooting.yard at gmail.com and um, Mrs Gubbins will be sorting through all the entries over the next couple of weeks in between naps and nettle husbandry. Um, one application <coughs> already received is from Fitzmaurice Trenery. Um, uh, and he wrote as follows. I will prove to be a robust rather than weedy patron of the Hooting Yard Civic Platform because my first priority will be to bring in a raft of measures or perhaps a tranche I haven't decided. It will certainly be a collective noun, of that you can be sure. I will certainly have more than one measure. Come to think of it, I'll probably have more than two. I can't just say, I will bring in a couple of measures. It sounds weedy. A few measures, at least. Probably not several. I think definitely a tranche, because being a French word meaning slice, it reminds me of holidays spent in my grandfather's pigeon tower, or pigeonnier in Breton, gazing out through the bars at the rest of the family enjoying slices of cake in the rock garden. Besides, if I were to say my first priority would be to introduce a slice of measures, people would laugh and snort and scoff and deride and backbite and heckle and sneer and taunt and mock. Raft, moreover, is a collective noun I've never understood. The phrase a raft of measures puts me in mind of a watercraft made entirely of hastily lashed together spirit levels which, because of a, their structural fragility, and b, their intended purpose of precisely measuring cant or gradient, would be doubly useless on the high seas. Um, I keep forgetting to mention, so um, luckily this week I'm remembering, that um, next week on Friday, uh, Friday the 9th of November, um, drop everything you're doing and go to Slough. Um, at 8 o'clock in the West Wing Centre in Slough, um, there will be an evening of lugubrious music and lopsided prose. Um, the... Um, Lugubrious music is provided by David Outer Spaceman, and the lugubrious and the lopsided prose um, will be read by me. Um, various items from the Hooting Yard archive. Um, you can get details um, from the following address: http: colon double slash fenner f e double n e r dot d d i c t dot co dot u k. Uh, it's the Fenner Fest, named after Fenner Brockway. Um, it'll be the third time I've appeared there um, in Slough, the only time I ever go to Slough. Um, that's next week, Friday the 9th of November, I think at about 8pm. But Go to the website and check. And, um, yeah, come along. Uh, this is called um, Tiny Enid and the Gormless Nipper. Club-footed tot wins heroism cup. This was the headline on the front page of the daily brouhaha that first brought Tiny Enid to national attention. Until then, her heroic exploits were known only to a few. Her intervention in the case of the gormless nipper changed all that, at least for a while, until a fad or frippery came along to divert the fickle public. Yet some of us have not forgotten the heroic infant, and it's important that a new generation be reminded of her deeds. The gormless nipper was roughly the same age as tiny Enid, and of roughly the same diminutive stature, but otherwise the pair of them might have inhabited different planets. Where tiny Enid was heroic, the nipper was gormless. Where tiny Enid showed valour, gusto and dash, 
The nipper was gormless, gormless, gormless. The nipper was raised in an orphanage not unlike Pang Hill Orphanage. It was a monstrous black brick building crumbling upon a hillside. One winter's day, the gormless nipper was leaning out of a window, gazing gormlessly at the sky, when he fell, landing in a gormless heap in the snow. Instead of trudging back through the snow to the huge iron door of the orphanage and rapping his tiny fist upon it until the kindly matron let him back in, the gormless nipper wandered off, away from his grim black brick home, ever further away until he was quite lost. Thus began a series of accidents and misadventures which befell him due to his gormlessness. Stopping to rest at a level crossing, his cravat was singed by sparks from a passing locomotive. When he made to untie the cravat to look more closely at the singeing, he half strangled himself and lost consciousness. Swooning, he fell forward so that the very top of his head almost touched the railway track, and when a second locomotive thundered past seconds later, he received an inadvertent haircut, his locks torn out by the screeching metal train wheels. Had he had a mirror when he awoke from his swoon, the gormless nipper would have seen that he now had the appearance of a tonsured friar. He roamed onwards, crossing the tracks, and fell into a pond. Minuscule aquatic beings within the pond attached themselves to his skin and burrowed through to his innards, where they fed upon his tissue and squirted out pond venom. They were microscopic beings, actual size, so the gormless nipper was unaware of their parasitic sucking and squirting, and the amounts of pond venom were so infinitesimally small that even the most advanced scientific apparatus would be unable to detect them. Nevertheless, he began to feel off-colour, and when eventually the venom reached his brain, it had the effect of increasing rather than alleviating his gormlessness. The nipper slept that night in a byre surrounded by cows. Discovered at dawn by a florid-faced farmer, he was set to work pulling a plough through a field. The winter sun blazed on his tonsure and turned the snow to slush, and by the time he was done ploughing, the nipper's socks were soaking wet. He took them off and hung them up to dry on what he thought was a washing line. Alas, it was an electricity cable running from the farmer's generator to a new-fangled power spade, and the gormless nipper was jolted by a shock of sufficient voltage to make him queasy. So when, shortly afterwards, the farmer fed him a bowl of soup, he vomited it up all over the freshly laundered farmyard kitchen tablecloth, an heirloom embroidered with unbelievable delicacy by the farmer's great-great-grandmother. Understandably furious, the farmer kicked the gormless nipper all the way down the lane into the village square at Scroon Hoonpooge and abandoned him there. Dazed and sore, still queasy, and with the pond venom coursing through his vitals, the gormless nipper slumped against a plinth. The village beadle found him there, tonsured and sockless and with sick on his sleeves, and accused him of defiling the statue of frizzy-haired minstrel Leo Sayer atop the plinth, which was the pride of the village. Thrown into a dungeon, the, slip the nipper slept fitfully that night in the company of mice and beetles. The next morning, the beetle handed the gormless nipper over to a brute to whom he would be apprenticed for the next six months. Day in, day out, the brute sent the nipper to the bottom of the sea in his bathyscaphe, from where he had to plunge into deep-sea trenches and collect eerie bioluminescent organisms. The goggles of his diving suit did not fit snugly, and the gormless nipper gradually began to lose his sight. When he was almost blind, the brute rowed him out to sea and left him marooned on a welkin-crusted rock. And there, <coughs> excuse me, and there he may have perished, were it not for tiny Enid. One day, eager to do a heroic deed, she sailed aloft in her hot air balloon and spotted the gormless nipper, weakly trying to prise the very last whelk from the rock. 
rightly judging that he was far too puny and famished to hoist himself up any rope she might dangle down to him, Tiny Enid set her burners roaring and ascended high enough to snare a cumulet. Tying a quickly scribbled message to the bird's leg, she propelled it in the direction of the air-sea rescue station at St Bibbly-Bib-Dib, then descended again until she was in shouting distance of the gormless nipper. "'Fear not, nipper!' she cried. "'I am Tiny Enid, and I have alerted the air-sea rescue station at St Bibbly-Bib-Dib to your sorry plight by attaching a message to the leg of a cumulet.' The bird is flying its little heart out, even as we speak, and soon a lovely big lifeboat will scud across the waves to rescue you. Preserve your energy and stop trying to prize that last whelk from the rock, for soon you will be sitting at my kitchen table, wolfing down a slap-up hot dinner of non-seafood items. And so it was that, nine months to the day since he had fallen from the orphanage window into the snow, the gormless nipper returned to his grim black brick home. He was driven there by Tiny Enid herself in a hired charabank on the day after she was awarded a tin cup for heroism. The gormless nipper had managed not to be sick all over Tiny Enid's tablecloth and a few eye drops from her mysterious cabinet had restored his sight. The hair had grown back where it had been ripped out by the locomotive and his heroic rescuer selflessly gave him a pair of her own socks to replace the ones still hanging neglected from the farmer's electricity cable. Had Tiny Enid known that the nipper was riddled with microscopic aquatic parasites squirting pond venom, no doubt she would have found a way of exterminating them. She was that kind of girl. More about Mrs Gubbins now, who's been very active recently. Um, among the most inventive minds at work today are our management consultants, those busy-brained men and women forever thinking up exciting new ideas for the world of work. We're all, I hope, familiar by now with hot desking, a revolutionary approach which allows a business to sell off half of its office furniture for the greater good. Now I've learned... Um, somewhat belatedly, I admit, that the BBC has launched a hot shoes initiative. First the furniture, now the clothes. What will be the next hot thing? Here at Hooting Yard, we always try to keep one step ahead of the latest management thinking, so we tasked Mrs Gubbins to come up with a list of hot thing initiatives. Being an octogenarian crone, La Gubbins balked at the use of tasked as a verb, but we fed her a bowl of gravy pudding and offered to help find that knitting needle she mislaid, and she soon came on board. She initially, <coughs> she initially decided to set up a working party to originate and assess various hot ideas, but this was felt to be crass until it dropped the working party title and renamed itself as an ideas silo. The silo has a hub with radii. Each radius has a directional pointing device and at the end point of each is a brain crate. Responsibility for sifting through the crates rests with Mrs Gubbins herself in between her core activities of knitting tea cosies and taking naps. As a result of her first such sift, Hooting Yard will shortly be launching a series of hot initiatives entitled Hot Pencil Sharpeners, hot carpets, hot puddings and hot Peter Wingard monogrammed cravats. I think listeners will be able to appreciate the tremendous benefits these hot things will have on the ongoing Hooting Yard world domination project. And remember, you're important to us. Please let us know what we can do to make further 360 degree improvements, whatever they may be.
Ask any halfway sane person where they go to find out the latest information on peas, and chances are they'll say, Hooting Yard, of course. I think we have a proud record of bringing pea news to the masses, and in keeping with that, um, I received a communique from roving Hooting Yard reporter Tristan Shuddery. Dear Frank, this is an important fact that you may wish to file somewhere in your pulsating cranium. According to Wikipedia's article about the aviator and recluse Howard Hughes, quote, In the 1930s, close friends reported he was obsessed with the size of peas. Um, there was an earlier pea-related dispatch um, on Hooting Yard, and um, I thought I'd remind you of that here. They're small, green, solid, edible spheres, and you eke them from pods. I'm talking about peas, of course. Let's sing their praises. At the dinner tables of Hooting Yard, there's a food we hold in high regard. Oh, I wonder what can it be? It's the little green edible sphere called the pea. The shelling of peas has long been recognised as a therapeutic activity on a par with pig observation. Some doctors of the brain recommend that neurasthenic patients should spend an hour each day shelling peas and another hour leaning over the fence of a sty watching pigs. The experimental psychiatrist Tarpin Paltrow suggested doing both at the same time, with results that have been hotly debated ever since. It was Paltrow's student PK Spaceman who coined the term PQ for P-quotient. Your PQ is easily calculated. Take the number of peas you have eaten in your lifetime and divide it by your age. This figure can be plotted on a grid against, for example, your body mass index, rotundity of head, shoe size and various phrenological data. Dr Spaceman was fond of citing Lloyd George's view that Neville Chamberlain had a wrong-shaped head and put this down to a lack of peas in the latter's diet. Sometimes he attributed it to a lack of peas in the former's diet, too. In desperate circumstances, for example, when one's life is at risk, peas can become useful tools, or at least adjuncts to tools. There is the story of the Antarctic explorer clinging by his frost-bitten fingertips to the edge of a crevasse down which he was about to plunge, who managed to clamber up onto the ice by fashioning a harness using ribbons, elastic bands and frozen peas. Peas have been compared with planets, sometimes, by poets. The author of the song we heard at the beginning of this piece wrote other pea-related verses, in one of which he takes each planet in turn, using the mnemonic Mud, vinegar, ectoplasm, moorhens, jasper, straubenzi, unspeakable, nixon, popinjay, and contemplates them as peas in a pod, not yet shelled by one of Dr Spaceman's wild-eyed, brain-sick patients. There is no mention of pigs in the poem. Make of that what you will. Um, apart from the um, evening of 
lugubrious music and lopsided prose. Um, barring cancellations or hissy fits, next week we'll also see the first of Hooting Yard's new public seminars, where matters of great import will be debated by a mix of experts, intellectuals, charlatans, rascals and persons of fecklessness. The topic of our first debate is Life Beyond Death and will be an exciting head-to-head pitting the enormously wealthy best-selling author Deepak Chopra against Hooting Yard's very own Little Severin, the Mystic Badger. Mr Chopra will argue that he has spiritual insights into life after death based on his rigorous and expert understanding of quantum physics. Little Severin, the mystic badger, will scrubble about in the undergrowth and snuffle the air in his mystic way, thus proving a very worthy opponent. Claims that the debate is weighted too heavily in Deepak Chopra's favour can be summarily disposed of. Little Severin, the mystic badger, knows just as much about quantum physics as his human opponent, if not more so, and to suggest that the badger will be outwitted is plain wrong. You'll see. The debate will take place in a tent in the middle of a field near Sawdust Bridge. Tickets to see Little Severin are free, but unfortunately you'll have to pay through the nose to see Deepak Chopra's segment, for so high a spiritual plane has he reached through use of transcendental meditation and other techniques that it takes an enormous cash flow to keep him bobbing up there in the mystic ether. In addition to a wallet packed with cash, please bring some grubs and roots to donate to Little Severin's cupboard. And um, that's nearly the end of of, uh, Hooting Yard for this week, but um, I'd just like to leave you with, with this. Plotinus, the philosopher of ancient Greece who gave us the six Enneads, had atrocious handwriting, did not properly separate individual words, and did not bother himself with the niceties of spelling. His student Porphyry, who edited, polished and arranged the Enneads for publication, had the thankless preliminary task of transcribing Plotinus's shoddy and near-illegible scribbles. That was almost 2,000 years ago, yet in many ways it describes perfectly the working relationship that obtained between Dobson and Marigold Chew. The out-of-print pamphleteer had an abysmal scrawl, possibly because of the unusual way he clutched his pencil, like a monkey with a pincushion. It may be difficult to make sense of that simile, but go and lie down in a darkened room and screw your eyes tightly shut and everything will become clear. For salvaging any clarity at all from Dobson's notebooks, we have Marigold Chew to thank. Without her, not one of those majestic pamphlets would ever have been tucked lovingly onto the shelves of a motorway service station or airport bookstall. Among much that they had in common, Porphyry and Marigold Chu were excellent proofreaders, capable of spotting the tiniest error and correcting it. This is not a job you would give to the American cinema actor Bruce Willis, Mr Willis is apparently a keen contributor to blogs and chat rooms online, and when other readers pointed out his many infelicities of grammar and spelling, he issued the immortal retort, Proofreading is for pussies. He will not be considered for a work experience placement at Hooting Yard. So um, that's all for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, Bye-bye. You're tuned to Resonance 104.4 FM, the art of listening.
Um, yeah, the art of listening, indeed. The way to do art of listening is to, first of all, you've got to siphon out your ears um, and then, I don't know, keep them open. Um, this is Resonance, 104.4 FM, <coughs> uh, resonancefm.com. My name is Frank Key. This is Hooting Yard on the Air. And... Uh, here is an exciting craft project for young and old alike. Follow the instructions carefully and you'll be the proud and happy owner of a toy crow made out of balsa wood. Imagine the flabbergasted looks of family and friends as they admire your handiwork and resolve to become better, more productive citizens by following your example. Imagine them gnashing their teeth in despair as it becomes apparent that they are cack-handed nincompoops, whereas you are the very opposite of a Butterfingers. Incidentally, if you are by chance a Butterfingers, do not be deterred. All you need is self-belief, sometimes in the teeth of the evidence. Just go and read Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand and stop snivelling. First of all, obviously, you will need some balsa wood. I'm afraid that you will probably have to pay for it. If you are a mendicant and cannot countenance frittering your paltry beggings on something as inessential as balsa wood, you may have to resort to theft. I cannot condone even the most measly purloinment of craft materials or indeed of anything else, so we would seem to have reached an impasse. Help may be at hand, however, from various charitable institutions or even from wealthy individuals who share a passion for balsa wood work. You could try writing letters to such as Yoko Ono or the Duke of Norfolk, or even Lynn Cheney. The latter is the wife of the ex-Vice President of the United States, not to be confused with Lon Chaney, the deceased film actor. Here is a model letter you can use to ask for assistance. Dear, insert name here. Like you, I am an enthusiastic balsa wood craftsperson. Unlike you, I am poverty-stricken. Please send me some of your... Se se Please send me some of your spare balsa wood so I can make a toy crow. Yours sincerely, insert your name here. That should do the trick and keep you away from a life of crime, the consequences of which can be disastrous. Only last week, a ne'er-do-well was apprehended while trying to steal a tube of modelling paste from Huberman's, and he is due to be hanged imminently. He will certainly not be the envy of his friends and the possessor of a crow made out of balsa wood, so do not even think about em emulating him. So, you now have your balsa wood. Next, you will need adhesive. There is a range of glues and gums available from Huberman's and elsewhere, and I think I can leave it to you to make the right choice. It really doesn't matter whether the glue is clear or cloudy or white, whether the method of delivery is via a nozzle or a squeezy pad or a spatula, whether it comes in a tube or a tub or a jar. The only thing you need to keep an eye on is whether or not it is sticky enough to fit two pieces of balsa wood so decisively that they cannot be prized apart even by wild beasts. You may want to test the adhesiveness of your chosen adhesive before cementing the purchase. If you are in Huberman's, you can go to the little cupboard near the fire escape to do so, and I'm sure other retailers have similar facilities, although they may, there may be a fee involved. I will assume that you have returned home safely with a suitable adhesive and that your pile of bought or donated balsa wood awaits you on your kitchen table. If you do not have a kitchen table, for example if your kitchen is pokey and does not accommodate much more than a bread bin and a kettle, any old table will do. If you do not have a table of any sort, just use the floor, but sweep it clean of filth please.
Now, the next step is to sort out your balsa wood. Working methodically and with rigorous self-control, divvy the balsa wood into discrete piles, putting like with like. So, for example, place together pieces that might serve as beaks, those suitable for wings or talons and so forth. By the end of the exercise, you should have separate piles of balsa wood for each part of a crow's anatomy. If you lack ornithological confidence and are not entirely sure what a crow looks like, don't be afraid to consult a reference book, preferably one with lots of pictures. Just make sure that the book you choose has a section on birds. There are a few paperbacks in the basement of Huberman's, but for a broader selection you may want to look further afield. Now is the time to make use of that adhesive. Remove the lid or wrench off the cap or pierce the seal of the tube or jar or tub. Sometimes this is easier said than done, and you may need to be violent. If you are a weakling, some preliminary strengthening exercises are recommended, or, as a shortcut, you can try drinking various invigorating syrups. Those of you who choose the latter might ought to seek advice from a qualified medical practitioner, and I stress the word qualified. Quacks, shaymen, mountebanks and wizards cannot be trusted as far as you could throw them if you were not a weakling, no matter how exciting their various potions may seem. Be diligent in examining the certificates and diplomas of your chosen medico and remember that things are not always as they seem and there is a roaring trade in counterfeit documents. If you have even the tiniest suspicion that there is an attempt to hoodwink you with a forgery, call the police immediately. OK, you're ready to build that crow. Keeping an eye on a reference book picture, if necessary, assemble the crow by gumming together bits of balsa wood taken from the separate piles. I don't need to go through this in inordinate detail because you're not stupid, but to get you started and to make sure you don't make a ridiculous mess of the whole thing, just remember to stick together the bits of the crow that are contiguous. For example, the beak goes on the head, the talons are at the far ends of the legs from the body, and so on. You may find that there is an anatomical crow part for which you do not have a corresponding pile of suitably shaped balsa wood pieces. If so, throw caution to the winds and improvise. Strike an attitude of vivacity and daring and all else will follow. Trust me. When you're done and you're and you compare your Baltimore crow with the picture you have probably been working from, you will notice that something is not quite right. Do not be downcast. I'm not yet done. At this point, you need to go back to Huberman's, find the paint department, and get some black paint and a paintbrush. Mendicants should have already fired off letters to paint-keen wealthy people, such as Ariana Huffington or Art Garfunkel. Now, before slapping the paint onto your crow, make sure that each piece of balsa wood is thoroughly stuck to the piece next to it. As you bash it and wrench it and throw it around the room, it is possible that a part may break off. If this happens, splurge more glue on and reattach whatever part it is, the beak or a feather, with a bit more vim. When you're sure that your crow will not fall apart, paint it black all over two or three times. Replace the lid on your tin of paint and wash your paintbrush very thoroughly under the hot water tap or with a slosh of turps, depending on the type of paint you used. And that's it. When the paint is dry, you can pick up your balsa wood crow and take it round to show off to your family and friends who will be flabbergasted, just as I promised. Note for mendicants. 
If you made your crow using donated balsa wood and paint, it's a good idea. It's a, it is good manners to write a letter to your benefactor enclosing a snap of the wooden bird. I know I gave you a model letter to copy before, but this time I'm going to leave you to your own devices, for by now you will, I hope, have the confidence to stand on your own two feet and need no further mollycoddling. tale <laughs> excuse me a curious tale attaches itself to the shortest pamphlet Dobson ever published of a light-hearted even frisky disposition one foul winter's day he wrote as follows obtain a large jug of paraffin Remove the cap from the jug and slosh the paraffin over a pile of something dry and brittle in a public place. Toss a lighted match onto it, stand back and watch the resulting blaze. This will warm your cockles and provide a pleasing spectacle to pass the time of day. Having nothing further to add, the pamphleteer persuaded Marigold Chu to set these four sentences in a particularly decisive and heroic typeface and, <coughs> and issued it under the unambiguous title Fun with Paraffin! Exclamation mark. For the cover, Marigold Chu chose a mezzotint by the mezzotintist Rex Tint, depicting his sister Dot Tint hand-tinting one of his mezzotints with a paraffin-based colourant. Before doing any typesetting or production work on the pamphlet, however, Marigold Chu had a fractious to-do with Dobson over his use of the word jug. She insisted that a jug was by definition an open-necked container and that he should prefer the word canister, for a canister would have a cap and be a more likely receptacle for paraffin than would a jug, which, though it may be fixed, fitted with a plug or stopper, would never have a cap. Dobson never took kindly to having his errors pointed out to him, believing that the sheer force of his prose, even in so short a pamphlet as this, ought to silence his critics. He was fond of quoting Christopher Smart's line from Jubilate Agno, where the poet says, For I pray God for the ostriches of Salisbury Plain, the beavers of the Medway, and silverfish of Thames. Sorry, that's the wrong line. I was distracted there for a moment by a freshly laundered dishcloth flapping in the breeze. The line Dobson liked to use to defend himself against detractors from Christopher Smart's Jubilate Agno was not that one, it was this one. For my talent is to give an impression upon words by punching, that when the reader casts his eye upon them, he takes up the image from the mould which I have made. Marigold Chu, though, was a stickler and challenged Dobson to produce in the real world rather than from the skewed universe inside his skull a jug sealed with a cap. Characteristically, the pamphleteer tried to shirk this by muttering some nonsense about his urgent need to examine a nest of stints in a shrubbery over by the pond. Why on earth he persisted in his lifelong delusion that ornithology could rescue him from any pickle he found himself in is a question for wiser heads than mine. Marigold Chu made short shrift of this of his stinty babblings, of course, and Dobson was left with no choice but to head off to Huberman's in the hope that somewhere on the shelves of that unutterably gorgeous department store he might pounce upon a capped jug. Chapter 
and therein lies the strangeness of this tale. For as he approached the plaza where Huberman's loomed enormous, he found the building enshrouded in a weird mauve mist, like the purple cloud in M.P. Shields' novel The Purple Cloud. And he wandered into the mist and through the doors of Huberman's, and there in the foyer he came upon a tottering tower of jugs, all with screw-top caps, and all filled to the brim with paraffin, and he was convulsed by a desire to toss a lighted match upon them, and to pass an entertaining time watching the blaze, just as he had described in his yet-to-be-typeset pamphlet. But as he reached into his pocket for a box of lucifers, he was felled by an eagle-eyed Huberman security guard, a titanic monster of a man whose epaulets glistened in the mist and whose buttons glistened in the mist even more than his epaulets so glistened. And Dobson was kept under lock and key in a broom cupboard in the basement of the department store until bailed by an eerie cadaverous magistrate who roved the land on horseback following the mauve mist wherever it settled. Home again, fuddled and with mysterious mauve stainage upon his clothing, the pamphleteer told his tale to Marigold Chew, who, despite raising a sceptical eyebrow, skipped at once to her shed and cranked out Dobson's pamphlet with the text as Dobson wanted it, the world once again cast from the mould his words had made. <laughs> I awoke one morning from uneasy dreams to find a foreign person standing at the foot of my bed, shouting at me. This was the beginning of a series of events so disturbing, so uncanny, that I am reluctant to tell you about them, for fear that I will not be believed. But I am in a quandary, for if I do not unburden myself of this tale, I will surely go completely crackers. Such is the fate foretold by the foreign person. It was among the things he was shouting at me as I awoke. I did not understand him at the time, for his tongue was alien to me, and in any case his shouting was so deafening that I could not make out individual words, but later I had everything translated, read aloud by a trained actor, and recorded on a cylinder. Maddeningly, however, it was clear from listening to the cylinder that the shouting foreign person had forbidden me ever to speak of the things that happened, for not only would I go crackers, but I would suffer from ague and the dropsy and the bindings, and my legs and arms would be broken, and my belly would be a thing crawling with worms, and I would shrivel up and die. What a dilemma I was in, to be sure. I said that the shouting foreign person was standing, when I awoke, at the foot of my bed. In truth, it was not really a bed, but a wooden pallet laid any old how on the floor, onto which I had dragged a mattress, or what passed for a mattress under the present regime. So the foreign person was not just standing there, which would have been alarming enough, but towering above me. It was a foreign person of no mean stature who shouted at me in his weird guttural language. I would say he was seven feet tall at a guess, and if that sounds implausible, broaden your mind. This globe is dotted with extremely tall persons hither and yon, and all I'm saying is that one such person was standing at the foot of my pallet shouting at me. 
I think if I had still had a bed to sleep in, I would have been better able to cope with the situation. The shouting foreign person would not have loomed so titanic had I been raised up from the floor, the angle from my head to his less the angle from my head to his less acute. Also, I would have had blankets to pull up to my chin in a protective gesture rather than having no blankets. The regime is dedicated to the reinvigoration of its citizenry and that is why we're bidden to sleep on pallets without covers and with any windows that have not been bricked up flung open as wide as they can be flung. Such measures are, as of today, still optional, though rumours fly, as rumours will, that the era of coercion will soon be upon us. I am doing my best to help usher in the bright new civilization promised by the regime, and I can say with pride that I was the first person in my cadet tower to smash up my bed with a fire axe and nail the broken clutter of wood into the three pallets, donating the spare pair to the Rex Harrison Tower for the destitute, to which I had already given two-thirds of the stuffing from my mattress. That we still have need of a tower for the destitute has been described as a blot upon the regime, but I challenge anyone to show me a regime without a blot. It can't be done. The shouting foreign person was also a sort of blot in that his appearance was anomalous and untidy and a sort of rupture in the natural order. He ought not to have been there, but unignorably, like a blot, he was. I'm afraid all I could do at the time was shriek. This did not stop him shouting, and boy, oh boy, did he shout. It was so loud he would have raised the roof if I'd had a roof rather than the frayed tarpaulin stretched over my room at the top of the tower. The actor I engaged to record the translated shouting onto a cylinder did not shout, but he declaimed the words in a thespian boom that was quite loud enough. I had come upon this actor when I went to see a regime-recommended production of Jasper Poxhaven and his amusing electrical wiring systems, a play of great potted resonance. I'm not much of a theatre-goer, and I doubt I would recognise potted resonance, great or small, without a prompt. But I swooned with pleasure whenever this particular actor opened his mouth, so he was the natural choice when I needed someone to record the translation of the foreign person's shouting. Hiring him was easy enough, as he was a part-time cadet and lived below me, far, far below me, in the cadet tower. More troublesome before that was finding a translator. Bear in mind that I had no idea from whence this foreign person had hoved, nor to what barbaric language he did his shouting. It was with some reluctance that I asked around in case anyone else had been woken by the blot, for I did not want to gain a reputation as a cadet enthralled to anomalous phenomena. Lord knows we have enough of such creatures, more and more of whom have been crawling out of the broken brickwork since the regime adopted its current very wise policy of isolating them in a tower of their own near the frontier. Soon we shall have no more of these tiresome cadets in my own tower, and that will be a small but significant step towards the bright new civilization we are promised by the regime under the guiding hand of the great helmswoman. I never did find anyone who admitted to having been woken up by a shouting foreign person at the foot of their pallet, and happened upon my translator through pure chance. I was paddling in an approved paddling pool and struck up a conversation with my one fellow paddler. In the course of our conversation, she told me she was a translator who specialised in barbaric and guttural languages. 
I hired her on the spot, without telling her what it was I wanted her to translate. And as we each toweled our feet dry while sitting on the cement blocks surrounding the paddling pool, I swore her to secrecy. At first she balked at this, for she suspected moral turpitude, as well she might, but she was reassured when I flipped my cadet coupon out of my pocket. She did the translation that very day, and the next day I ran to ground the actor with the booming voice and had him record the cylinder. Thus it was that I learned that I would go crackers if I did not tell anyone about the shouting foreign person at the foot of my pallet and all the subsequent oddities that befell me, and crackers accompanied by other fearsome maladies if I did. That was and remains my quandary. I am, of course, making the assumption that the blotty foreign person shouted the truth. It has never for one moment crossed my mind... Excuse me. It has never for one moment crossed my mind that his shouting may have been twaddle, either purposefully or so otherwise. Nor have I entertained the possibility that my paddling pool translator's grasp of his barbaric tongue may have been less than expert. I have implicitly trusted both parties. Perhaps that makes me a fool, but the crunch is that there is no one I can ask to judge due to the nature of my dilemma. I can see where all this is leading, you know. I know that the regime will succeed, must succeed, in reinvigorating the citizenry and realising the accomplishment of our bright new civilization. But now I am as sure as a cadet can be that by the time that golden era dawns I shall have been turfed out of my tower and I shall be languishing either out at the frontier in the tower for cadets enthralled to anomalous phenomena or worse just down the road in the Rex Harrison tower for the destitute. Whichever comes to pass I shall no longer be the perky cadet I am now. I will be a blot. That's the end of this week's show, uh, but I'd just like to point out that if you'd like um, uh, comprehensive architectural blueprints of the Rex Harrison Tower for the Destitute, so you can make your own model of one, uh, possibly out of balsa wood and glue and black paint, uh, just like a crow... Um, then write to me at hooting.yard at gmail.com and uh, I might say something back which will either be promised to send the blueprints or something else entirely. Uh, I'm not really sure what I'm saying here. Um, it may be I'm uh, uh, the uh, the the Slade School of Art afternoon thing will be over by six o'clock next Thursday. I'm told, uh, but I may not be here as I may be at, hosp at the hospital having a needle injected directly into my eyeball again. Uh, I can't. I have lost count of the number of times this has happened, and. Uh, I have to say, it doesn't seem to be doing my eyes much good. So, uh, never mind. It's something, something to tell the grandchildren when I have some. Uh, that's it for this week. I'll be back either next week or the week after. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the show. And uh, thanks very much, very many thanks to John for, Johnny Seven, for producing it as ever. And uh, that's, that's it. I can't think of anything else to say today. Uh, other than Yava Husita, the space greeting. Bye-bye. <laughs>